Well, good morning, Calvary New Life. How are you guys today? It is uh, really exciting to be here. Um, like Eric said, uh, this is home. Uh, this is family. My wife and I, uh, we grew up coming to Calvary every single Sunday uh, for so, so many years. And so it is awesome to be here with you guys, to see some familiar faces, to see some new faces. Uh, this is just awesome. I love that immediately uh, when we gather together under the name of Jesus, we are family. And so I look out and I see brothers and sisters and it brings a smile to my face. Uh, a little bit about me, like I said, I grew up here in Orange County uh, my whole life. I've been married now for eight years to the wonderful, amazing Aaron Hemphill, former Aaron O'Brien, uh, daughter of Dan O'Brien, who is a longtime Calvary elder here. Uh, we have two little girls, Jameson and Georgia. They're three and one. And um, like I said, I'm the pastor of New Life. Uh, New Life has been around for six years. We had our six-year birthday in January. Thank you. I got a couple shout-outs. And it's awesome. It's been a journey. It's been a roller coaster. Uh, yet there's nothing else that I'd rather be doing. So uh, it, is on, it is so exciting to be here. I know you guys have been on a journey for a while now, uh, going through the book of Hebrews, uh, exploring what does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to be a person of faith? And so I'm excited to just join that conversation today. So I will say one last quick prayer, and then we will dive into Hebrews. God, we are here as sons and daughters. We are not just workers. We are not slaves. We are not strangers. We are known children of yours. And so we enter today, God, with confidence that we can approach our Heavenly Father and we will receive nourishment, we will receive love and wisdom, and then I pray that we would also bless God and give back our love and adoration for you today. But I pray boldly, because I believe you've given us this privilege, that we would hear from you today, God, that somehow your words would overpower mine, and that through the work of this Spirit, your words would come through and bless all of us today. So in the name of Jesus, I proclaim that truth, and we are excited to have an experience and an encounter, like Josh said, uh, with our Father. Amen. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. That's where we're going to be today. I'm going to be reading from the NLT. So if you do your Bible on the phone, I would recommend going to NLT. That way you're following along word for word, but it's totally up to you. Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to be in verse 5 and 6. So I will give you guys a second as you turn there. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? So stop right there. Right? Obviously, this passage is talking about money, but I would argue that it's not your typical uh, money passage. Oftentimes, when the Bible speaks about money, it's warning against materialism. Uh, often, when money is brought up, we're told to be weary of greed and be on our guard against greed. Sometimes, when money is talked about, uh, it's in the context of exploitation, 
and exploiting others so that others can get rich. And yet today's, I want to make the case it's a little bit different. Um, It's actually about trust. See, the author of Hebrews, he lays out, even in this kind of parallel structure, two things that you can place your trust in. He says you can place your trust in your money, in your possessions, in the economy, or you can place your trust in God. He's getting us to pause and reflect, where do we primarily get our security from? Where where do we get our comfort and our protection from? Is money the ultimate provider of that, or is God? Now, if you're like me and you grew up in the church, we know the right answer, right? The arms will shoot it up. We will answer loud and proud, God is our ultimate trust. But I think today is worth pausing and saying, do our lives actually reflect that? Because if everyone with a pulse knows that in reality, this is something very difficult to step into. And we have seen firsthand just how hard this is. Right? When we look back on this past year, sometimes hardships have a way of revealing where our trust is, does it not? Right? We saw that when things got hard this year, there were some chaotic moments. There was fear. There was a lot of anxiety going on this year. There was a lot of hoarding. There's a lot of moments where a lot of people would say, I put my trust in God. Their actions kind of gave a different message. Because I think for so many people, faith is connected to finances. When one goes up, the other goes up. When one goes down, the other goes down. For so many of us, our faith is connected to the equity in our home or to our stocks, our bonds, our 401ks, our savings account. Our faith is connected to finances. And yet Hebrews is saying our faith should be connected to God. There's a passage that I want to read that's going to serve as our inspiration for the day. You guys don't need to turn there. It's from Habakkuk chapter 3. It says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. I love this passage. He's saying, even though the economy is failing, and even though my crops, they're not doing what they're supposed to do, and even though all I see is disaster and scarcity and fear, he says, I will trust in the Lord. And when I read this passage, I hear such peace from the prophet's words. I hear security. I hear faith. And when I read that text, that is my prayer for all of us, that we would share a similar faith, that we can declare, hey, whether or not the economy is good or bad, the Lord is my joy and the Lord is my strength. So the question is, how do we get from a place of anxiety, fear, hoarding, panic, to a place of peace 
and comfort like Habakkuk. And I do think there are some things we can do. So take your Bible and now actually flip with me. Go to Mark chapter 4, because I do think there's a way that we can move along this spectrum. I do believe today we can show through the Word of God and through the Spirit how we can move towards a place of trust. Mark chapter 4, verse 35, is a good starting point for those of us who want that peace, who want a similar comfort. Mark chapter 4, verse 35, verses 41. It says, as evening came, this is verse 35, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon, pay attention here, a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Look at this phrase. Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified, verse 41. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. So you've got this incredible story, right? The disciples are in the boat. A fierce storm, high waves. I I imagine thunder and lightning and panic and fear. And the disciples respond, as anybody would, with fear and trembling. Jesus, do you not care? Do you not care about my life? Do you not care if we die? Jesus rises, issues one word, two words, one sentence, be still. And everything's calm. And he looks at him and says, where's your faith? See, and the point that I like about this, and the reason why I think this applies to today's idea and concept of trust, is there's something worth noting, is that Jesus doesn't minimize the storm. Like, he doesn't tell his disciples, it's not that bad. It's just a little breeze. It's just a little waves. It's really not that bad. He actually doesn't minimize the storm at all. Instead, what he does, essentially, is he ushers a reminder of who is with them. And you, you can imagine, you say, disciples, look who's in the boat with you. It, to, for Jesus, it's not about minimizing the environment or the circumstances. It's instead a reminder of who is with them. And so today, as we're trying to move along this spectrum of trust, this would be kind of my first challenge and encouragement for us, is that we must remember Who is in the boat with you? Because 2020 was quite the storm, was it not? Was it just me? Were the rest of you living in peace? Okay, my goodness, right? It's like a storm for all ages. And we had waves of unemployment, right? We had lockdowns. We had savings dwindling. We had businesses crumbling, right? We experienced the storm. There were lives that were being lost. There was fighting. I mean, that, 
it's a storm for all storms. And I think a lot of us responded very similarly to the disciples. God, do you not care about me? The business that I've worked for for 40 years, do you really not care? God, do you not care that my rent is due and I don't have the money to pay? God, do you really not care that I can't even get my car fixed? Are we in the midst of a storm ushered similar sentiments to God? Do you not care? And yet I hear Jesus lovingly would whisper to us, where's your faith? You're not alone. Remember who's with you. See, there's a special confidence that comes when you know who's with you. Uh, I told you about our two daughters. When Jameson was first born, uh, we had been waiting for a child for so long. So it was an incredible day. My wife is an absolute stud, went through over 30 hours of labor. And so there was all these emotions. We were, we were crying that day. We were coaching her. She's doing her best to bring this baby into this world. Everything was at a heightened sense. And I remember at around hour 30, when I just we were, couldn't take it anymore, in walked our midwife, Dr. Rouse. I'll never forget. She said, it's like mouse with an R, Dr. Rouse. It's easy to remember. And when she came in with her 37 years of experience, there was immediately a different confidence and mood in that room. All of the heightened feelings, all of the fear, kind of all of the worry, all of the stress, everything that was going on changed as soon as she walked in the room. To the point where she even said, she said, Matt, would you actually want to help kind of deliver the baby? And me having no experience whatsoever, I'm like, let's do this. Yeah. Is that allowed? I'm down. Out of nowhere, my confidence shot through the roof simply because somebody else was with me. This is what we see from this story. This is not to minimize what any of you went through this year, what any of us went through. Instead, we must be reminded, like the disciples, that you are not alone in that boat. I was not alone in that delivery room. And when the right person is with you, you can breathe a little easier. You experience a little bit more peace. First thing I'd love for us all to remember today is you are not alone. When you place your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that we are united with him. It essentially means we are co-mingled. There is no longer any separation between your life and God's. There's not certain aspects he's with you and certain aspects there's not. The full union we have with Christ is everything about us, he is now with us. There is no part of your life where you are alone now. Everything is with God, with Jesus, a.k.a. he's in your boat. But there's another element to this that I want to talk about. Go to Exodus chapter 16. I do want you guys to flip there with me. Exodus chapter 16, we're going to read verses 1 and 3. 1 through 3. Exodus 
Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 and 3. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of Sinai, between Elam and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. Tell me if this doesn't sound just like what we read. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into the wilderness to starve us to death. Now what's crazy about this passage isn't, this is Exodus chapter 16. And literally just one chapter earlier in Exodus 15, we see the great deliverance of God parting the Red Sea and leading his children through onto dry land. One chapter is all that separates this incredible exodus, this incredible deliverance from the hands of Pharaoh. One chapter later, you've brought us into the wilderness to kill us, haven't you, God? Is this your grand plan? Really? You did all of that just to do this to us. And don't you as the reader just want to shake them and say, what are you doing? Do you not just remember what the Lord did for you? How could you be so blind? How could you have such a short memory? Like I love, I love to sit on my high horse and just condemn them sometimes. Am I the only one? It's like, I just like to, oh my gosh, why would they do that? And yet, the more I read scripture and the more the Holy Spirit humbles me, the more I realize that the nation of Israel is often just a mirror reflecting my own heart. Because again, is this not how we have acted sometimes in our desert, desert seasons? And here's, as much as I wanted to condemn the Israelites, don't you remember what God did for you? I hear the Holy Spirit lovingly say, Matt, don't you ever forget the exodus that was done for you. Matt, have you forgotten about the deliverance that you've received? You could make the case, and I will make the case, that the deliverance that you and I have experienced is actually a greater deliverance than those Israelites did. Right? They were freed from Pharaoh, and yet literally the grip of sin and death we've been freed from. Like God came down to earth in the form of a man, lived a perfect life, died a brutal death for us, buried in a tomb, 2,000 pound stone, armed guards, pops out three days later and declares deliverance for all of us. Amen? Amen. And so for every time I want to look at the Israelites and say, do you not remember what was done for you? The mirror to my heart says, Matt, do you not remember what was done for you? Because this leads me to my second point. I'll say no. Let's go to Romans 8 first. So I'm learning this clicker thing, guys. Romans chapter 8. Check this out. Paul, this is what he will say to us. You don't need to turn if you don't want to. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 32. Paul says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? 
If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Look at verse 32. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give everything else? See, Paul is telling us kind of there's another process to this trust. It's not just remembering who's in the boat with you. Paul takes it a step further and says, you also need to remember what that person has done for you. Paul is shaking us saying, this is the God who did not spare his own son. He declared once and for all, there's no resource that he would hold back. That he is willing to move heaven and hell if it means being in a relationship with you. Paul said, it's not just remembering who's with you, it's remembering what's been done for you. And it was the giving of his own son. We need to not only remember who's with us in the boat, but we need to reflect and sit and meditate on what that person has done. That God, who did not even spare his own son, Paul says, won't he then give you everything else? Israelites, you think God led you into this exodus just to let you drop now? New Life Calvary, you think God brought you into his family just to right now abandon you in 2021? You think God has adopted you, made you saints, purified you, made you white as snow, given you all the heavenly blessings you could ever ask for, then just to say, sorry, you're on your own. Paul says, no. Remember what was done for you. Two summers ago, I visited, I went to Southwest Asia, and I went to a country where it is illegal to be a Christian. And that's not, I'm not saying that in hyperbole. You will literally get your citizenship or your passport snipped, cut, and kicked out of the country. And so me and some friends were there, and there's actually a little underground church on this, in this country. And we went and visited one of their services. And we're walking down the street. I felt like I was in a James Bond movie. I'm walking down the street and I'm greeted by this man who simply kind of puts his hand out, shakes my hand and says, follow me. And so I follow him and we go down these stairs, I kid you not, into this bunker. And he shuts the door and it's all soundproofed out. Wasn't much bigger than a 20 by 20 square. And over the next half hour, people start to fill in. And I'm able to sit and worship in this incredible lockdown underground church. We read, we sang, we prayed, and we broke bread together. And after the church service, I asked one of the people. I said, what happens if the government finds out about this? And he said, most likely we'll be kicked out of the country. We'll lose our jobs, potentially face jail time, but most likely just be, have our citizenship snipped. And I, I looked him square in the eyes and I said, are you afraid? And I will never forget his response. The most humble, yet confident answer. He just looked right at me and said, 
No. And it was in that moment I realized that there's a peace out there that I had yet to develop. And that interaction revealed to me that there's a level of trust that God still wanted to take me on. Because here I was, the one with all the bank accounts, with the job, with the 401k, with all of my privileges, with all of my rights and securities, and I'm talking to a man who has none of that, and yet he answered the question about his future with way more confidence and peace than I had. He was a living day modern Habakkuk. And I'll never forget that feeling in my heart of going, I want that, God. I want that. I want that peace. I want that contentment. It comes from trusting God. This man knew who was in that room with him. This man knew what was done for him. And when he sat and he held those two things in tension, he could look you directly in the eye and say, I'm not afraid. Do you not want that peace? I do. And beyond peace, I think we would begin to experience an overwhelming peace. Can you imagine what kind of witness to the world we would be if Calvary and New Life, we started to embody this? Like, think about it. One of the reasons the early church exploded was because of this very factor, right? They took all their money and they said, hey, throw it in a pot. Whoever needs it, go for it. God is my provider and I trust him. It was radical generosity when that wasn't the norm. And the world noticed. And they said, these group of Christ followers, those who practice the way, they have a different peace than the rest of us. And the world was drawn to this little community. Primarily, one of the reasons, because of their trust. And they demonstrated it. We're in the season where we're trying to teach my three-year-old how to ride a bike. And if any of you guys have done this recently, there's kind of two schools of thought right now. There's the balance bikes, which are the new cool hip things. Do you guys know what I'm talking about, these balance bikes? They're like half scooters, half bikes. They don't have training wheels. But then so you could go the balance bike route or you could go the traditional training wheel route. I'm kind of an old soul, so I'm leaning towards training wheels. Because I really think the concept of training wheels is pretty cool, right? You've got a bike, and you've got these wheels that are on the side, and they begin level with the back tire. And then if all the parents are there, you know what you do. You actually begin to raise the training wheels to where they're not always using them. They're kind of just there as you lean. And the goal would be you raise them higher and higher and higher, and then you take them off. I really believe that sometimes the state of the American church is we still have our training wheels on. Let me explain. We, we all declare we trust God. We love God. He is our provider. He's going to get us from point A to point B. But 
my bank account and my 401k are there just in case God doesn't. And I got this equity, so I know I got a HELOC ready to go just in case. And I, and I got an inheritance coming from me. And so, you know, God, he's most likely going to provide. But if, if for any reason he, he doesn't because he's busy or he just got a lot going on, I have these other things to stabilize me. And can I tell you what? The world notices this. The world sees that we still got training wheels on. Can you imagine if the pioneers of BMX, guys like Dave Mira, Matt Hoffman, if they're out promoting a new sport, hey, there's this radical new sport called BMX. We go super fast. We go super high. We're so hardcore and so extreme. Can you imagine if they did all of that with their training wheels on still? You'd say, dude, if you're so confident, take the training wheels off. And like, no, 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 we love biking. This is just there in case. I don't want to be a part of that sport. That's lame. And it was their reckless abandonment who said, throw them off, we will charge, that the sport blew up. I think the world is watching us. And they watched us throughout 2020. And they're watching us in 2021 and saying, okay, you guys claim to have placed your trust in God. Then why are your training wheels still on? And I'm not here to say, so the solution is we sell and liquidate everything, we give it to the poor, and that's how we get our training wheels off. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think it's worth asking the question, what could God be leading us to to kind of remove them? Like for some of you, maybe it's just a simple heart posture of you've got this mountain of bills and yet you're going to praise God this morning. Amen to that. Maybe for some of you, taking your training wheels off is today making a commitment to God that I no longer want my faith to be connected with my finances. I want my faith to be connected to God. I'd say amen. Maybe it's a little different for some of you. Maybe it's actually taking your stimulus check and saying, God, I know this person needs it more than I do, and I know who's in the boat with me, so I'm going to bless them with it. Amen. Maybe some of you own property, and you're a landlord, and you've been collecting rents knowing that some of these families are on their last leg. What would it look like to say, hey, you know what? We're going to pause rents for a couple months to allow you to get up on your feet. Wow. That demonstrates a powerful message to the world. I'm not here to prescribe a formula, but I'm here to provide the challenge of what does it look like to place more of our trust on God and less of it in our finances. I think the world would begin to take notice. and I think we'd see people drawn to this group, this family. I started with Habakkuk, and I want to end with Habakkuk, but uh, I'm gonna, I changed it a little bit. I hope God's okay with it. Habakkuk 3, New Life Calvary version. Are you ready? Even if I've been laid off and my rent is almost due, even if my business is closed and I'm losing customers, 
Even if my savings is dwindling and my reserves are low, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. How do we get to this place? It's by remembering who's in the boat with you. This is not to minimize for one second what you've gone through this year or to make light of the rising bills. I love the explosive language the Bible uses. Fierce storm, high waves, powerful storm. What you are going through is intense. And even still, Jesus looks at you and says, don't you forget that I am with you. As you sit and meditate on that, then Jesus lovingly will say, and don't forget what I did for you. I have led you on an exodus. I have delivered you from the grips of death itself. Remember that. That you will not starve in the desert. I will not somehow forget you and abandon you for what I have done for you. I want our prayer today to be, God, I break this tie with my faith to finances. Holy Spirit, cut it, sever it, and may my faith only be connected to God. Because as we make that prayer, as we lift our training wheels off to the point where we take them off, a curious world's going to see. They're going to become curious. And most of all, the glory of God will spread. Starting with this family, to our communities, and to our counties, till hopefully to the ends of the earth. That is what Hebrews is about. It's about placing our trust in the only one who can fulfill, the only one worthy of holding it. Let us pray. God, thank you. God, thank you that we are not alone. God, thank you that despite, despite what we feel sometimes, we can rely on truth. Despite our anxiety, we can ground ourselves in your love and in your presence and in the cross and in the resurrection. And so, Holy Spirit, as we continue to worship, Holy Spirit, would you give us pictures and images and words and people of what it looks like for us to take our training wheels off, to place our trust fully in you? Holy Spirit, I believe you speak and I believe you lead and so I'm asking you to make this personal and to lead us to what you would have for us so that we can also say with confidence, we are not afraid. We are not afraid. God, thank you. We praise you. And we place our trust in you. Amen.